Good morning. My name is Jay. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, we welcome you and are glad that you're here. Today is Palm Sunday. Good job, everybody. Good job. Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about Palm Sunday today from a couple of different perspectives. Um, today is the beginning of Holy Week, and as you know, uh, Holy Week is just this roller coaster of emotions. There is the triumphal entry when Jesus is being anointed king to the depths of despair when he is being betrayed and handed over to Pontius Pilate to be killed and, and when the same people who are calling for his, his, king, his kingship are calling for his, his crucifixion. Um, there's just there's so much depth to, uh, to Holy Week and it starts today. It starts on Palm Sunday. Um, we've also, if you've been with us here at Cornerstone over the last few months, have been studying the life of David and um, God led me to some interesting parallels between Jesus' triumphal entry and a piece of David's story that I want to focus on today um, and, and walk us through in our text and bring it back to, uh, back to Christ um, and to God's heart for his people. So that, that's our plan for, for today. Um, I would encourage you, uh, well, I won't encourage you, I'll, I'll just pray for you. Let's pray. <laughs> God, th- thank you for... Uh, uh, the people of God gathered together here today. Thank you for the people of God that are gathered together all across Lebanon City, Lebanon County, Southeastern PA, America, around the world. Today is your day, um, you know, and then the church has gathered to worship and to praise you. So um, we do not forsake the, the gathering of ourselves. Rather, we come together um, as your children, and we say thank you. Um, let me just right off the bat, in this week of weeks, in this, this time that, that you... Uh, have set us apart in and by this work, this sanctifying work of this week is why we're alive. This is the point. This is why your church is your church. This is why your people are your people. This is, this is about your plan. This is about everything coming together, being focused in and around Christ. And so God, I pray that you would open us to what it means to know you more deeply as your people, not just as individuals, God, but as your people, as the people of God together, unite us in a heart that is centered on Jesus. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. I pray that you would um, expand and open our minds to what it means to be people who join you where you are. We always want to invite you into our space. (laughs) We always ask you to come into our place and, and fix this and give that and and, uh, and you're a good God. I mean, you, you lavish generously. But really, uh, you invite us into your presence when it comes down to it. And you invite us to walk in your presence. It doesn't have to be a divide. Teach us what that means today, Father, as, as we step into your presence, as we step into your word, as we worship you. Yeah, Holy Spirit, come. Come into our hearts. Come into our minds. Come into this community of faith. Lead us, Father, into what it means to know you to see you for who you truly are. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You take your text and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. When you get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, stick your finger in it and turn over to Luke 19. 2 Samuel 6 is a text that Justin taught us about a few weeks ago. Justin uh, did a great job laying out the basics of how it is that we approach God, um, what it is that God's terms are for us to approach him. We don't, God does not come to us on our terms. We go to God on his terms. 
And there is a seemingly deep injustice here that happens to Uzzah when the Ark of God is upset and he reaches out to try and steady it and uh, he gets struck dead, you know, and David's angry with God and uh, has to take some time to process this anger and figure out who God is. And then David, he does it right the next time around. He transported the Ark wrongly the first time. He doesn't go on a cart. The priests are to carry it with poles. David knew better. Uzzah knew better, right? But God is a God who is slow to anger, bounding in love, gracious and compassionate. That's what Justin taught us. Um, it's a good sermon. If you didn't catch that teaching, you should go online and, uh, and check it out. We're going to approach 2 Samuel 6 from another perspective today, one that lines itself up with the triumphal entry of Jesus in Luke 19. So I'm going to read both these texts back to back. All right, so, so stay with the text. Eyes, text, moving, listening together. Here we go. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And this anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because of the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. I think that David treated Obed-Edom like a guinea pig. That, uh, okay, well, this thing just killed Uzzah, and I'm angry at the Lord because he didn't let me take it to Jerusalem. Who wants to take this thing for a while and see how it acts? You know? uh, (laughs) So, but, you know, Obed-Edom, he made out okay. All right, verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, "'How the king of Israel honored himself today!' uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. 
I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Turn over to Luke 19. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, when Jesus, he, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, on the colt they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So in the second Samuel 6 passage, David is taking the Ark of God from its place where it had been housed. See, the Philistines had captured the Ark of God in a battle long before this particular instance in Scripture. And the Philistines had it. The Philistines carried it around on, on a cart. That's how they transported the Ark. But everywhere that the Ark went, God sent like pestilence and boils and disease and diarrhea and all kinds of nasty things. Mice with, with, like, uh, with disease on them. And, and like the Philistines tried everything that they could to, uh, to get rid uh, of, to keep the ark, because, you know, it was a spoil of war. But, but they eventually just finally sent it back. And they just put on an ark and like, go. And so it went to Abinadab's house. And so it stayed at Abinadab's house. And so they're moving it. And the, the, the Jewish leaders, David, Abinadab, Uzzah, Ahio, these men, know better, right? They uh, put it on a cart, just like the Philistines did. But if you notice, it's a new cart, the, the new cart. <laughs> so there's a new cart, and the cart's going along. The oxen stumble. It jilts the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Uzzah reaches out. Bam, knocked dead. David gets mad because right? David is just trying to do what he thought was right. If you are a king of Israel, you want the Ark of the Covenant where you are. Why? That's right. The Ark of the Covenant houses the presence of God, right? The Ark of the Covenant houses the, prayer, uh, the, uh, the, the presence of God. If you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the actual chair that God sits on. It's called the mercy seat. God sits there. His presence dwells there. If you're the king of Israel, of God's people, you want the Ark with you, right? So David does what is appropriate in his mind, right? And this isn't just like some party that got thrown together. David lined this thing out. Read the Chronicles edition of this story, and uh, you can see how all the planning that went into this party, this 30,000 strong, you know, this is a huge thing that's going on. These were, there twice it says making merry in this text, right? Making merry before the Lord. Do you know what the Hebrew 
to English translation would be for making merry. Anyone? Party. Right? Party. And not a Christian party. Right? This place got nuts. Anybody here ever been to Jerusalem? Seen the Wailing Wall? Cool. You are very fortunate people. I haven't. Uh, but my friend recently went to, uh, went, went to Jerusalem and to the uh, Wailing Wall there. And uh, he was like, you got to see this. And he sent me a, a video that he had taken. Uh, and uh, he sent it to me. And there at the Wailing Wall, there were these Orthodox Jewish men. You know, exactly how you would think of Orthodox Jewish men. And these guys were, I mean, they knew how to have a great time with God. They, they, they were dancing and singing, and their hands were up. And there was complete abandon before the Lord. This is the Jewish concept of making merry. This is the concept of the kind of party that God throws in his presence, right? We tend, I think, to think of God's throne room, like in Revelation 8 or Revelation 4, where God's sitting on his throne and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was and is and is to come. I think that we think of this in very stoic terms as Western Christians, um, that God's sort of up on his throne and Jesus is sitting at his right hand. This is right at his right hand. The Holy Spirit's sort of like over here. <laughs> and nebulously. And they're all there. And then the 24 elders are, are here. And that weird, crazy beast with all four of those heads is right there. And all the people are out there. And in the background is this Gregorian chant. Of, holy, holy, holy. And um, we all sort of, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and it's very, very proper, very, pro- very Western Christian church. When in actuality, nothing could be further from what a Jewish festival is. Nothing could be further from what a Jewish festival is. Anybody here ever been to a Judaic wedding? Now, it's, you should go. If you ever have the chance, you should go. Uh, just go out and make friends with a Jew to get to their wedding. Um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an amazing experience. Anybody here ever been to a Messianic congregation? Yeah? Please skip Cornerstone one Sunday and go to a Messianic congregation, right? Um, that that it, it, is, it is a unique thing. Like, understand the cultural difference between what we think and what they lived. This making merry concept. This is praise at its most open and raw and without, with, without any reservation. Without any reservation. If you're sitting there and saying to yourself, oh, that was the Old Testament. (laughs) That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Anybody know what 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 says? No, it's not women be silent with all subjection. That's verse 10. Verse 8, God doesn't go after the women first. He goes after the men. And he says to the men, I want the men. He says the men, not like mankind. I want the men in the assembly to praise God with their hands up and you do that until things are right. That's how the assembly is supposed to start. This is Paul. This is New Testament. The assembly is meant to start with men praising God with their hands up without wrath and malice, right? Which 
is a throwback to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he says pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean pray all the time. That's ridiculous. You've got to go to sleep sometime. You're all sinners, right? We're all sinners if that's the case. You got, pray without ceasing means you pray until there's resolve. You pray until your spirit is at rest with God, but you don't let that prayer concern stop until you and God are cool. Same thing in 1 Timothy 2.8. I want the men to pray without clamor and malice. I want the men to praise me with their hands up. The men, not the women, the men. To praise me until it is right. Until they can move past themselves. See, men, this is a ridiculous rabbit trail that I'm on here. Men, we, we, we carry the weight, Right? Women carry inner weight. That's what it means for a woman to be a woman, to be isha. Men are ish. We carry an exterior weight. And so when we go to a gathering, we bring that weight with us. And that weight carries a lot. A man is meant to carry exterior weight. A woman is meant to strengthen a man's strength from within. So yes, men, you absolutely will bring an exterior weight with you where you go, but even to an assembly. But your job is to worship past that. Your job is, is to break through with God and to not stop praising God until you're there. You hear what I'm saying? This is what it means to be a man. Men praise. Men praise. Men party with God. It's not a surprising thing. I mean, when you look through Scripture, it's, it's all there. It's just Western culture. We have become so deeply reserved and, and, and our souls are spiritual lit, you know, that we have to like put this thing out there, this front of what it means for us to be male, and David I think shows us here what it means to be male I think Jesus shows us what it means to be male, you realize Jesus was completely naked when he hung on that cross and he was no more strong than right then you know, there, there, there is a, a, a deep wounding to male sensibility that western culture speaks to us, that God wants to redeem yeah. And by all means, don't just start running around looking like you're, you know, let God change your heart. Let him shift you here, you know, and let that flow out through who you are in your relationship with him. Don't just start doing things because you're doing things. That's ridiculous. That's legalism. We'll talk about that. Um, but you got to let God change your heart. You're meant to worship God like this. I'm talking to men. You're meant to worship God like this. So let God have you. Let him have you in here. And it will show up in your family, in your life, and it'll work its way out in, 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 in who you are. You'll, be, you, you'll understand a, a dimension of God that, that Western culture tells us to put away. God's not like that. I'm on a rabbit trail. I may as well keep going. Um, I'm going to pray, all right? God, we, uh, we bless the men in our congregation. If you're sitting near a man, let's lay hands on on, on the men in our congregation. Right. Uh, we, we, we bless men. And God, in, in the name of Jesus, I want to just want to tear off properness and, and, and uh, uh, wrong concepts of what it means to be honorable or strong. In Jesus' name, men of Cornerstone, I speak the spirit of Jesus to you, the spirit of David to you, that worships God, that worships God without the reservations of what the world wants to tell you masculinity is. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't 
Oh, God, don't let the thief steal, kill, and destroy our men. God, I pray that you would open the heart of every man here to your heart, to the tenderness of Jesus, to the compassion of Jesus, to the fiery strength of Jesus, all of which is so deeply acceptable and pleasing to you in your heart and your presence. God, release our men to be worshipers. Praise, praise men who are marked by praise in their heart. Not about motions, not about exteriors, not about being religious in some strange way. God, men who, who are truly free in our spirits. God, strengthen us. Lead us to your presence. Strike us there, God. Set us free to worship you the way that we were meant to. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we see David. He comes back, and he does it right the next time, you know. He gets the Obed-Edom experience, experiment right. <laughs> Good for Obed-Edom and his family. And... Uh, then he does it properly this time, right? The priest takes six steps. He offers burnt offerings and, and peace offerings. It's, this is all done right this time, according to God's directions. And, and David is just out in front making merry, partying before God, praising God, so much so that he's wearing a linen ephod and he is dancing before God. With, with dan- not just dancing, but dancing with all his might. I don't think that there's any man in the world who's a good dancer naturally. It's just how it is. Uh, Chris Brown's a good dancer. And there's some other people who are good dancers, but they were trained. No man's a good dancer naturally, and as long as we all understand that, then we can all dance together and dance before God with all our might, you know? That kind of thing. Anyway, I'm getting off again on another (laughs) rabbit trail. David is dancing before God with all his might in a linen ephod, which means he's wearing a very thin white garment that generally would go down to his knees. And when you dance, you hike up your robe, Right? So David is dancing with all of his might and completely in the presence of God before the Lord with a linen ephod that he's got hiked up so that he can actually do his dances and jumps and spins and all the things that he's doing. And so there's a very great possibility that David is completely exposing himself from time to time in front of the people that he's with. So he gets home. Well, he goes and blesses the people. He gives out a lot of stuff, gives a lot of food and whatnot um, to the people. Isn't it interesting that gifts from... uh, from God at this point through humans consisted of food, um, you know, and it's just, it's a real deep blessing to the people. Have all this stuff. Then he goes to his own house to bless his own house, and his wife comes out, McCall, and she dishonors him. And it says in her heart she despised him. Now, don't judge McCall too badly, right? You gotta understand. A, Saul married her off to David, probably when she was very, very young, and then Saul took her away from David. She fell in love with another guy. I forget his name a few chapters ago. And then David called for McCall later after she had fallen in love with this guy. In fact, this guy loved her so much that he followed behind her weeping until, until Ishbosheth sent him away. You know? And so uh, I'm not sure that McCall is happy at all to be with David to begin with. You know, it's not like this was a happy marriage or anything like that. And so she comes out, and, oh, how the king of Israel honors himself, you know, exposing himself like one of the vulgar men before his servants, servants, women. You don't talk like this to your husband. You certainly don't talk like this to your husband if he's a king. You know, so McCall just completely despised him. David basically says this. He basically says, no, 
you're wrong. I did not dishonor myself dancing before those women. I danced before the Lord. And they will honor me because I was before God. I was dancing before the Lord. Which tells us something about praise. Tells us something about praise. That praise is both deeply individual and deeply corporate. You cannot split these things. Praise is very much about just you and God. Praise is very much about the community of saints coming together to worship God together. Psalm 95 is a plural song about worshiping God, right? Psalm 144 is an individual song about worshiping God, about praising God. We worship these things with these things together. So, McCall comes out. She says, David, you didn't do it right. You didn't do it right. You didn't worship God right. You dishonored God. You dishonored yourself. You tried to bring attention to yourself, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward to Jesus, the triumphal entry, Luke 19, right? And you'll see some of the same basic content. In 2 Samuel 6, there's three concepts. And in Luke 19, there's three concepts. There's the presence of God, there's a worshiper, and there's a legalist, right? There's somebody saying, you're doing it wrong. There's a worshiper who's pretty much lost it because they're just in God's presence, which is here, right? In 2 Samuel 6, the presence of God is on the ark. David is the worshiper, and McCall's the legalist. She's the one saying, you're doing it wrong. You're not worshiping God in, in, the, in, the, in, the right, in the right way. In Luke 19, the presence is there in Jesus. The worshipers are there. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The legalists are there, the Pharisees, right? The street is lined, worshiping the Son of God and declaring him king. Who could disagree with this? Jesus just brought a dead man back to life. Right? Lazarus was dead. Everybody knew it. He was dead three days. Jesus raised him from the dead. King? Duh. Right? So they're out and they're worshiping. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Basically saying, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's our Messiah. The Pharisees come along. And they rebuke Jesus, and they say to Jesus, Teacher, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. You know that you can't call yourself God. You know that you can't call yourself the Messiah, the Son of God. You know that what they're saying isn't in line with our rules. They're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. We put all kinds of constructs around, around worship and around praise. We put all kinds of things where things don't belong. Jesus answers the Pharisees by saying, listen, I tell you, if these people were silent, even the rocks would cry out. Right? There is no stopping praise. Why is there no stopping praise? Because there is no end to God's party. Right? There is no end to God's party. When we come here on a Sunday morning and praise God together, we're not creating a praise experience for you. We are joining a praise experience that is happening all the time everywhere. Psalm 19 says that the heavens are continually declaring the glory of God. The, hev the heavens are going, God is glorious. And the firmament shows his handiwork. At the atmosphere, everything around you shows his handiwork. They're saying, hey, look at me. This is Jesus. 
I'm pointing you to him. Day unto day utters speech. Every day there's words from creation that say, God is great. Night unto night pours forth knowledge. You get to know God by looking at a night sky. Who made that? God made that. How great is he? He's incredible. There's a party all the time, everywhere. Well, what does Jesus say happens in heaven when a sinner repents and comes to Christ? The angels rejoice. You know what that word rejoice is? Make merry. You know what our word for that is? Party. How often are people coming to Christ in a world of 7 billion people? All the time. Right? Heaven is full of the praises of God. Right? The place is nuts for Jesus. And it understands the depth of praise, too. Now, I'm not, I'm not at all coming against Jeremiah's laments. Please, worship God in your sorrow and with your sorrow. Absolutely. But understand this, that that is part of who God is. Right? I mean, that, that, that's not a, it's not like God has a sorrow room over here and a happy praise room over here and a really deep, meaningful worship room over here. And you go over here to pray and raise your hands and tears, and over here you kneel. You know, and where are you going, this is all one big thing. You know, the friends that we just visited are in mourning. And I was just filled with insane amounts of joy while we sang Bright Star. And Missy and Charlie and I were all before the throne of God together, them weeping, and me ecstatic in my spirit. And God saying, yes. Right? No, this is not about form. This is not about, this is about a heart that is connected to the heart of God. And the heart of God is delighted and overjoyed when his children are delighted and overjoyed with him. Because that is where your joy will be most full. God is all about you. God loves you. God wants you with him. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What? Why don't you join the party? There's a block there, right? There's a block. There's a faith block there, or a lack of faith block there. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. The reason why a lot of us do not worship and praise God with our lives is because we just simply don't believe that God is who he says he is. And we don't believe that God's word is real. And we don't believe that the Holy Spirit is with us. And these faith blocks come up that blocks the rest that is worship and praise that God is inviting us into as a part of his party. So I see a huge parallel between these two triumphal entries. This is definitely a triumphal entry. There's the presence, there's a worshiper, but there's somebody who wants to speak against it, right? In Luke 19, there is the presence of Jesus, there's a worshiper, and there is some people who want to speak against it and say, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. The whole point of 2 Samuel 6 is that David wasn't doing it right. That he was a child dancing before God. You know, a child is not ashamed of the fact that they're naked. Babies love it when you take their diaper off. You know? A child trusts their father. A child trusts their mother. There is safety and, and refuge and beauty and life and health and goodness. This is the presence of God for you. Why would we not go into this party? 
Why would we create these other legalistic systems of ways of interpreting and thinking about God? And, and I'm not talking about conservative Christianity. I'm talking about all Christianity across the board. We create rules everywhere about what they should, shouldn't, or will look like or not look like. Now, this is about your heart. This is about your heart. And Paul calls us to have men lift their hands in worship and, until we break through, right? This is surrender. Stick them up. Boom. <laughs> There's another triumphal entry, right? I think I've been working on this this past week. I think there's a bunch of triumphal entries in Scripture, but there's one that really caught my, my, my attention from the parallel, right? Here you have 2 Samuel 6, the triumphal entry, Luke 19, the triumphal entry, but there's one other really key one that I want to draw your attention to, a very triumphal entry that I don't think we see very often in Luke 15, right? Luke 15 is the story of two lost sons. Go there. Just a couple of pages back. Verse 11, there was a young man, I'm sorry, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While his father was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So here we see another triumphal entry. All three of these stories have a road. All three of these stories have something or someone traveling on that road. And all three of these stories end in celebration right? The father is the presence in Luke 15. The younger son is the worshiper. Now, you might say he doesn't look like a worshiper. You're absolutely doesn't, right. He doesn't look like a worshiper. He doesn't even know who he is. He just knew that something in his spirit came alive and said, what in the world am I doing? Did you ever get to that point? What in the world am I doing? Did you ever look in the mirror and just be like, whoa, whoa. how did I get here? No? Did you ever like just complete like a, a big wrestle with an accusation from the enemy or just get done with a, a nasty sin that you fall into all the time and you hate yourself for it and you just think about like what, what is going on? I hate me. God hates me. That's what it translates into then. That's not what we see here though. We definitely see a son that's lost. We definitely see a son that, that is, is stuck we don't see a father that responds like that. This, this son took it into his head to say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my dad how to love me, which is what we do all the time. God, here I am and I'm going to tell you how to love me. I'm going to tell you how I love you and, you and I'll also tell you how you love me. 
which is a bit messed up. But, but th- that, that's how we live with God. We tell God this is what we're worth, this is what we're worthy of, and then we expect him to meet us on those low levels, which is exactly what the younger son did. Did you hear what I just said? We tell God what we're worth, what we are worthy of, and we expect him to meet us on that level. The problem comes when this level here is within the government of God a bit. Like, oh God, I basically keep your rules and I'm a good person and I pray before my meals and I give money and and I go to church and these things. So this is basically in the government of God. Of course, right here is hell and God's destiny for you is right here. Right? And so we, 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 we live as, Father, just let me be your servant. You know, just... If you could just sort of kick me a few bucks every now and then, I'll take care of myself, I'll stay out of your hair, but I'll at least have three square meals a day and a place to sleep. That is us telling God what we're worth. And look at what the Father does. He said, no, you are my son. You were lost, and now you're found. Let's party! You know, throw, but, but Dad, haven't I dishonored you? Didn't I throw away all your money? In this case, he threw away a big chunk of land. This is a farmer that he'll never get back. That part of dad's estate is gone forever. Dad, haven't I ripped apart who you were, what you worked for, all the things that you gave me? Haven't I shamed you? God simply says, you're my son. You are my son. All that is in the heart of the father is forgiveness and generosity and goodness. That's it. That's all you see from him. And let's have a party. And the younger son simply goes in. It's dad's party. It's dad's house. It's dad's land. It's dad's calf. It's dad's ring. It's dad's robe. It's dad's kiss. It's all dad's stuff. The younger son just simply goes in. He goes in to his father's house. And he worships. This is worship. Going in is worship. Stepping into the presence of the Father. But the legalist says, nope. Nope. Verse 25, his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard the party. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Right? He wants a party with him and his friends. Where's dad at a party with him and his friends? Not there. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. Look again, the father's heart, generosity, goodness, forgiveness. I mean, the elder son is looking his father in the face and actively dishonoring him. And the father just says, son, you, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost and is found. And in this triumphal entry, we again have a legalist that says it's not right. It's not right. If anybody deserves your goodness, Father, it's me. This is not about who deserves what. This is about a father whose heart cannot stop being good. 
This is about a dad who cannot give enough. This is, about a, this is about a father who loves so much and so deeply and so extravagantly and so crazily that he sent his own son to die for us so that death would die. Right? Death died because Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. And so we have life. This is the God that we're talking about. And the world just keeps telling us, you suck, you suck, you suck. That should not have been right. I can't believe Jesus had to go through that for you. You piece of crap. And you're like, oh, you're right. Oh, Jesus had to suffer all that junk for me. Oh, this is just, this is so dark and deceitful. It pleased God to bruise his son for you. At no point did Jesus look down from that cross and go, why are you doing this to me? Jesus looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. Heart of the Father is just overflowing with love for his people. This is what he invites you into. Why would you not go in? Why would you not go in? There is such love. There is such warmth. This is the best party you will ever go to. Why would we not go in? Because we're deceived. Because the enemy accuses us. So you have these false notions of who the Father is. They're just lies. The triumphal entry stands as a proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is worthy of the party that is thrown for him both in heaven and by his creation and by his people here on earth. And we should go in. We have such a beautiful invitation from the Father. Come to my house. Be with your family. Worship me. You know, the uh, triumphal entry from these three perspectives, as you look at that and as, as you think about that, I would encourage you to offer yourself enough grace to be the legalist. I have been. The person that we're most legalistic with usually is ourselves. And then that gets projected on others. We're, we're usually most about what's right or wrong for me, what the enemy tells me about me when it comes to ourselves. And then we can project at other places. But understand that the words of judgment that you ever speak to another person, you will always judge yourself first before you judge them. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's human fallenness. It's, it's, it's a wicked way that we live because it, we get so deceived in it that we don't realize that we do that. And, and, and that's when things can really get dark and, and hard. And so I would encourage you as we go into a time of praise together to understand this, that God has grace. God has grace for you. There is no shame from your Father. Be real with Him. Be real about what you've been told is right and wrong about you or what's right and wrong about him or what's right and wrong about church or what's right and wrong about worship or what's right and wrong about your relationship with, with, with who he is and you. God defines the relationship here. In our economy, that younger son was absolutely right. 
absolutely right. Yep, hired servant at best. That kid should pay. A son did pay. Jesus paid. Jesus paid it all. And has given us freedom to go in. Let's bow our head and close our eyes, get in a quiet space with God. Reflect for a minute with the Holy Spirit. Again, allow yourself grace. Allow yourself grace. If you're feeling condemnation, if you're feeling fear, if you hear God inviting you to step into his presence, to come into the party, if God is pulling you that way and you are not able to go there, just stay. Be with God. Listen to what he's saying. Engage. Engage. Your father will not condemn you. He will not shame you. The invitation is there. Come in the party. We worship you. We delight in you. We praise you. God, thank you. Thank you for the party that is yours. This is your celebration. This is your joy that you invite us into, your life that you give to us. May you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you step into God's party. And may your life be full of joy. Amen. Amen.